Thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by Student Staff Partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Zara Butt, President of the Westminster Student Union. In this interview, we discuss Zara's academic journey at Westminster, her involvement in the union leading up to her campaign, as well as unpacking the points of her manifesto. If you wish to get involved or find out more about the student union, feel free to visit the link in the description. Hi, Zara. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's so good to have you as a special guest. How are you doing? I'm good. I mean, currently, yeah, just a bit under the weather, but like amazing. Like this this job is going really well. (laughs) So I thought we could begin with talking just a little bit about yourself. So first things first, where are you from? So like I was born here in London, uh, West London to be specific, um, um, in Hounslow. Um, But my mum is from India and my dad's from Pakistan. So basically Asian, really. (laughs) Nice. And how would you describe your upbringing in terms of how race was kind of seen and felt in your household? Yeah, I think um, it's always been a difficult topic. I mean, for me, like, I live in quite an Asian area, if you want to call it. So, um, you know, there are certain, like, expectations and things that you are warned about before you leave the house, you know, like, you know, make sure, like, you dress okay, like, make sure that you come across all right. Like, I do a lot of tone shifting by accident. It's just something I picked up while I was growing up. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those things, um, and especially in Asian household, like, I've noticed as I've grown up and as I've moved away from like home a lot more like that anti-blackness is so rife in Asian communities and it's something that like people don't like to talk about because it's uncomfortable and like but it's good that it's uncomfortable because you have to like really unpack that and it's like there's so much anti-blackness like homophobia like sexism in those communities and it's like and for me it's all a product of colonization but um and all of all of the underpinning points of that, but it's still quite prevalent. Um, and my sister, who um, is my half sister, um, and you know, she looks completely different to me. She's got you know curly hair, darker skin tone, like you know. And I was always put like next to her as like, a, oh, you know, you're more acceptable to be outside with people. So that's that's really harsh to put on two young kids like growing up. Like that's well, I mean, she's older than me, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just still a weird dynamic to live with. And did kind of your racial identity or kind of your sense of belonging uh, racially change for you, like entering higher education specifically? Oh, a hundred percent. Like, I mean, there's lots of intersectional points there because like I come from a working class background um, and, you know, education was the thing that people like, especially in Asian families, like I I don't know if it's, maybe I'm being stereotypical, but in terms of like my Asian family anyway, would push for like, go university, go this, da, da, da. But they never really prep you for <laughs> what you're going into. Um, and neither did the schools I went to. Um, so when I came into higher education, I was like, first of all, all this terminology is all new to me. Like, I never grew up with understanding what any of these words meant. Over time, yeah, I've gotten used to it because I work in Haiti now. So it's kind of different. Um, but that was the, the first barrier was like the language and also the content. Like I was expected to know so much about British culture and values in my course where like all like you know these like these books from ages ago like I I don't really know because I've come here with immigrant parents and I don't really understand that culture bit like even though I've grown up here and I lived here like 
I'm still like a Londoner so like there's still a difference in like what you really get in terms of culture so higher education was really difficult for me to like adapt to in the beginning um but like the students union made that really easy like easy for me actually Mm. okay and just to get like an idea of kind of your um academic journey um just for some background like what did you study at Westminster yeah so um I did an undergraduate like BA in creative writing and English literature um which is something I didn't think I would be doing but um it was the first thing I was like oh I'm good at English I guess let me me do that and I liked writing so it was that um and I think you can tell now like there's so many barriers in that subject in terms of like what kind of what kind of books you read what kind of um things you look at and explore but um yeah that's how I got here and what would you say your favorite thing was about kind of studying your degree at Westminster oh my favorite thing um I think that I really like the fact that the people I met at university had such like variant and variant and if you want to call it radical views um, which align with mine in terms of like establishments and looking at like decolonizing for example is a big point uh, mental health like I met so many people in different sort of elements um, within my course um, and we could really I felt like together we could challenge like individually that's different but together like if we push forward like oh this content doesn't fit with something that we wanted to learn like we had the adaptability to be like can we do something else like and that's not really that's not really common in a lot of courses but um with my course at Westminster that was like actually your right to do um what advice would you give to prospective students who are looking to study um creative writing with English literature I mean the first thing I do is don't buy your book it is a waste of money I'm telling you now save your money save your coin and just you know all of this stuff is online, if anything. And I'm going to get in so much trouble. Oh, my God. No, but <laughs> save your money is the first thing. Also, like, with creative writing, just feel free to do what you feel comfortable writing about. Like, a lot of people get stuck into, I need to write, like, a certain person or I need to write, like, a, you know, some great, like, poet. And it's like, no, you have your individual style and individual way of telling story and just really hone in on that. And I found that out too late, if you want to call it. Like, I found that out in my third year. And by that point, I was just trying to pick up the pace and finish my essays. Like, so just take that advice, I guess. That's my first, my first gift to you. Oh, thank you for that. No, that's some really good advice. Um, and can I just say, as we move on to the next segment, uh, congratulations on becoming president of the Westminster Student Union. What an achievement. (laughs) I hope you're settling well into your leadership role. But I thought that maybe we could begin with talking a little bit about the beginning of your student journey, um, student union journey. Mm -hmm. So what societies or groups in the union were you a part of um, during your undergrad? And like, where did your kind of involvement in the union actually start? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, It's going to sound hella braggy and it's not, I promise. Like, I just got really, I was really, like, engaged as a student anyway, like, back in, like, sixth form as well. Like, I wanted to do so much. And I guess that comes from me seeing, like, so much injustice. Like, I wanted to do something. So, like, I started actually working in the Labour Party when I was really young. Um, And when I came into university, I was like, oh, like, I've heard about, like, societies. Um, So the first club I joined was Taekwondo. Because um, that's something I've been doing since I was about five years old. Um, I now I now 
go and I'm doing an instructor course for taekwondo now but um I'm that's the first thing I did was like sports um and then the second thing I did was I guess I bumped into Lubaba imagine so she was a BAME officer at the time and I bumped into Lubaba and she's like do you want to come to a Black History Month event I was like okay um and she took me to a Black History Month event and I was like this is amazing like how do I get involved how do I help um and yeah and then from then I ran in the elections for NUS uh for NUS delegate um and when I got that you know I went to conference um with one of the other sabbatical officers who works with me Samira who's DP welfare and now (laughs) um and then um yeah then I just got introduced to a lot of people um but I still knew that like I had like niches that I wanted to work into so I started a spoken word society um at Westminster and it's it's something that you know got involved with like a lot of projects like a democratic education network and like I got to do loads of spoken word and like talk about culture and race actually that was a big part of my poetry um and then after that I moved um I was like oh you know <laughs> me and wanting to do like everything um I was like oh you know what let me just start dodgeball club so out of nowhere I started a dodgeball club um and I got really like excited about all these opportunities um and then there was an opportunity to run for BAME officer. Um, and I was like, first of all, my best friend, Jordan, she was like, you know, she's like, I want to run for it. I was like, go for it. And then she was like, actually, I don't want to run for it. And like halfway through, like, she was like, never mind. Like, I got a lot of other stuff to do. So I was like, you know, what? I'll run in the by-election for it. So I ran in the by-election, became BAME officer in 2019. So this is a bit of a long story. Um, and, and then after that, like, we went to lockdown um but I still continued all of the work that I was doing around course reps school reps like I got involved in like every different sector like you put sports you put societies you put representation and then like you look at like academic representation so I really got involved in all spheres um which kind of makes sense to why I'm kind of here now um because I get to do the kind the same kind of things of like looking broader and like strategy building like a lot of my work is around like looking ahead like like not just this year but five years ahead like and that's how I always thought like if something's not sustainable what's the point of doing it like but yeah that was my journey really <laughs> so what kind of made you think like you know what president is where I need to be like president is what I need to run for next that has to be my next thing what made you kind of like think that do you know what's funny that wasn't my next thought my next thought was actually let me let me run for VP welfare and the reason I wanted to run for VP Welfare was because, like, um, originally I was like, oh, you know, like, I used to work in the NHS a lot, um, in CAMS, like, in the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. And I was like, oh, um, like, it kind of aligns with the work I've been doing and the challenges that I faced in my own life. So I was like, oh, I'll do that. And then I really thought about it because I had school reps and all the other avenues. And I was like, I feel like I want to do more, like, development work. Like, as much as I want to run campaigns, like, I also want to make something like a policy or I want to do like a review of something and change the way that we look at education and like especially in the union and and other sectors like I really wanted to change the direction that we were going in and I think that's why I was like you know what president is the place for me to be able to do that because not only do I sit on a lot of committees but also you know I can spend a lot of my time building up those policies that actually help our students in the long run and that's what I really care about so that's the first step that I took. Amazing. And could you just talk us through some of the points in your manifesto? 
yeah, of course. Um, so the first one that I'm always excited about is around political and civic engagement. So what I really mean by that is, you know, I want to partner with more students' unions because we're not, typically, Westminster as a union is not a political union. We tend to step out of a lot of London activism, especially like SOAS and LSE and UCL, all those ones are so active. I wanted to change that narrative. Um, and it's, it's a difficult narrative to change, really, if you haven't done anything like that before. So that's the first thing I wanted to do was actually collaborate with students unions and organisations outside of here. Um, and the second thing I wanted to do was actually push our student groups, the ones that are, you know, the ones that want to create change, push them and like fund them a bit more so they can actually do that. Because if anything, if I do an event or whatever, if I'm doing a political activism event or whatever, it's, it's not going to actually influence or help anyone. But if I get the student voice to do that, because that's their student experience, that's so much more valuable for them and also the community in general. So I wanted to elevate those people to be able to do what they want to do. Um, so that was like my first point. Um, I'm, I'm working on something called an engagement strategy and a democracy review. So what I'm doing is we know that sector-wide student unions suck <laughs> at trying to get engagement from our students. And I think one of the main barriers to that is that we don't listen to our students. Um, I think that we think we listen based on previous feedback, but we never continually get feedback on different areas of like of the students' union. We kind of like take it all as a holistic, like, oh, like NSS um, and all of those like big surveys. So, you know, that's one thing. So we did a couple of voice weeks in for this manifesto point, um, one on well-being, one on academics, and like they're going to continue themed ones so we can really tailor that information we're getting um and you know we've got some insight data as well that over that so we can find out where the biggest gaps are and actually our, our like our students with disabilities is the biggest gap and our and our BAME students as much as I hate saying that I hate the term BAME but you know that's one of the things also that I will be challenging in terms of how we look at stuff like that so um yeah so that's that engagement strategy and then we've got the democracy review that I'm doing that really backs that up it's basically looking at every single position in the union and saying, does this work or not? And that's really scary because that could even mean that my position won't exist next year or the year after. But I think it's really important so that we get proper representation. So that's, that's the two main manifesto points I've been working on. Um, the third one that is around wellbeing. So we were working on a joint wellbeing framework with the uni and the union. And that basically sets out a couple of commitments that say, this is, do we care about student wellbeing? yes or no you know and then it follows that with a strategy and loads of different things and as part of that my role in that is doing the proactive and preventive campaign work with Samira so um who's our you know our welfare officer so she'll be doing all the campaign stuff I'll be doing like the policy and bid stuff around that to prevent all the things around um especially because COVID is quite here and it's new and it's, it's changing um constantly so that's something to look at um and I guess the other big, like really big piece of work that underpins all of this is supporting our sports and societies um, and really honing in on that and being able to like help them with anything they need, especially with our VP activities. But yeah, sorry, that's, that was quite long. <laughs> no, not at all. Thank you so much for taking us through those in depth. Uh, yeah thank you for that uh, just revisiting your point on kind of like political ad, um, activism because I know that's something that you really um, advocate for how what do you feel like is the most important thing 
for students to feel empowered to partake or participate in political activism? Um, for me, it is about making sure you create a community that actually cares about one sole issue. I think, I think the problem is, right, we have so many different issues in the world, you know, um, and as bad as it sounds, you know, there's not enough people to solve all of those issues all at once, right? So it's about if a student group, for example, is interested in looking at, for example, Palestine and activism around state violence, like 100% support that and that work you know you have to give those resources to that place to push forward for student feedback and push forward for student direction so that's I think that's my initial thoughts on it um but it is something that I think about a lot actually in terms of what what can we do and what actually what, what difference can we make um and I think that the only thing that like I see it in the Labour Party as well and I know this is quite this is quite external of Westminster but you see in in real life politics, you know, people haven't got themselves in groups um, and they can't agree on something. They can't agree on one tiny element of something and then a whole direction doesn't go forward. Um, and you lose that momentum. I feel like politics is a momentous uh, activity. For, po for, poli for political activism to work, for me, A, you have to have everyone on the same page and sharing out that resource so no one is burnt out in that process. So, for example, if someone is in charge of doing posters, if you're going to do that, someone's in charge of writing a policy, like you have delegation, like accurately given out and equally given out. And you have to understand that a lot of the things people are fighting for is something that they lived with. That lived experience is so, so important to understand. So, you know, you have to care about people's well-being as well as pushing forward for what, what you want. And I think that getting that right balance is always tricky. And I was, and I was actually taught this a long time ago that if you like, so my grandfather was um, one of the first unionists in like India, like a very long time ago for, um, so it's like, I feel like that's, people look at me and they're like, oh yeah, that's where you get your, your activism, activism from, if you want to call it. And I was like, I was like, oh, well, here we go. But like a lot of the things that were said um, from him and his colleagues and things like that was like, if you can't give everyone a reason, to fight for something then there's no point fighting for it like for example in a room like if four people are unsure and six people are like yeah let's go forward those four people will drag you down do you know what I mean like those four people will stop you from doing what you need to do so you need to make sure that they are convinced that this is what they want to fight for if they don't they can leave that sphere like do you know what I mean like that I think you have to make people care about the things that are happening but yeah that was a very long-winded answer <laughs> No, I completely agree. And I think in my, the work that I do as well, I've found that it's not even, it's not so much kind of the things that we have in common that kind of, that we should be able to build a community from, but it's also kind of having, understanding our differences and just having like a mutual respect for them. Mm. And I think, you know, we're not going to agree on everything, like to be realistic, but yeah. things that we do agree on is what is going to bring us closer and bring us towards kind of like the important change that needs to happen. So I completely agree with you. Yeah. And I think you just, I think when it comes to empowering students, like, mm -hmm. you know, the best thing that you can do to empower students is actually sit and understand what their needs are. Like, yeah. what, do you, what do you want from this? What do you need from this? And is there any way in which we can navigate this conversation and you're so right you're not going to agree on everything like no one is going to agree on everything like but if you can genuinely agree in one direction 
it's yeah. it's so helpful but yeah yeah absolutely and I think for some students especially maybe in their first and second year like they're still kind of getting like a feel for kind of the university and higher education and kind of like thinking about their future so sometimes they just even need that guidance as mm. well like to understand like these are the some of the things that like that are, that are in like within your interests so I think it's also about like helping students and educating them as well because I'm looking back and thinking about like me in first year like and just thinking like yeah I would have definitely benefited from like being more involved in the student union and having like kind of role models to kind of help me understand like the things that I would that I should demand from the university and the things that I should want yeah and I feel like with that as well like and I'm and I'm well, I also reflect a lot on this stuff right and I say like being able to be political is a privilege being able to stand up for whatever you believe in is a privilege that a lot of people don't have and that's something I always bear in mind when I when I talk about political activism because I'm saying that like you know there are access barriers you know what if someone has a space that is so uncomfortable that they can't speak what their opinion is on that you know and higher education tends to do that sometimes you know I'm not saying always but I am saying that for example if someone in their course is saying that you know you know their teacher just doesn't get it you know that the lecturer just doesn't mm-hmm. understand where their point is coming from and it's something to do with race it's something to do with gender like Mm. where do you go from there because that's their only point of fall in terms of like challenging that you know so that's why I always think like we as a students union we need to be better at you know accepting that there are there are structures that we even have in our own students union that might stop students from coming to us Mm. and like we need to adapt to our student body and it changes every year like I mean generally speaking yeah students get nervous when they come to like to university and like students struggle to make friends things like that we know that data but what but what we don't know is what's coming up next because Mm -hmm. the next cohort of students might have a complete different outlook on what what they want to do with their activism and you have to adapt to that because we can't be stuck in old ways you know what I mean you have to always constantly adapt but yeah that's my take. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I think that kind of goes nicely into uh, this last kind of uh, area of our chat. But one of the key, another key element of your presidential campaign was focused on decolonizing the curriculum, I'm aware. And, you know, you're probably already aware that, you know, the project is kind of situated within that kind of work as well, on top of anti-racism. But it would be great to hear from you, who's kind of takes a different kind of approach, but is still on a very kind of similar journey. Uh, what makes decolonizing the curriculum particularly important to you? Yeah, um, so this year, I'll just give some context as well. So this year we decided that decolonizing curriculum shouldn't be one person in the student union's like priority. So we've made it a team goal, um, which, is, which is a different change, but like it's because it's so underpinning to loads of different aspects. Um, so yeah, for, for me, decolonizing actually looks at different ways and different like histories of understanding education um and I think that's so important because a lot of the time you get a very biased look at history you get a very biased look at education in general in any aspect um and I think that to be able to unpack that a gives you reality (laughs) gives you different different things to challenge and understand it's inclusive First of all, if we actually care about inclusivity or diversity or equality in any sort of matter, you must decolonize at the same time because decolonizing really reframes and moves the lens to something that's 
you know, going on now and like, you know, what's happened for years and years and years and history's been covered over because it doesn't because it's uncomfortable. And I always say this, if it's uncomfortable, you should be looking into it. You should be addressing it. Like you shouldn't be hiding from that. And decolonizing does that. It unpacks all the things that we need to really examine and look at. Um, but I understand like sometimes that's such a it's such a broad thing and it's been going on for years people say we want to decolonize this we want to decolonize this but with no actual like understanding of what that looks like and I think that you know for academics especially like the word decolonizing is scary because it's like oh my god I got to change my whole practice I got to change the way that I've been learning and people just don't want to do that really you know when you're in that position a lot of people don't and even for students you've, you've grown up and you've said like oh this is the way things are supposed to be and it's like, I, and then and then you and then you go on TikTok or something, and all of that's expanded, and you're like, oh my god, you're sitting there for hours, like really deeping what's been happening. Um, and I think, but that's the beauty of decolonizing is that you sit there and you realize, oh my god, my feelings are so valid about that. Like when I felt uncomfortable about this in my education system, and it was so inaccurate, you know, especially if you're talking about your backgrounds, you know, if you're, if for example, if you're a black trans woman history doesn't really tell you exactly what's happened um if you're a black person in general you know history is so inaccurate in you know how black people came to England they were already here bro like there's so many other things in that um especially when I talked about like my Asian heritage and I think about like that side of my my own identity and I think about oh they they talked about oh, how the British Empire was amazing and it brought like railways to India to take stuff out like they forgot that bit in the textbook, you know, and that's the reason why decolonizing really puts that perspective um, in education. And I think that's why it's important to me. And what kind of specific forms of like coloniality can you think of like and that you've noticed um, during your time in higher education? So that could be in your undergrad or like in your position as president. Like, yeah, what are your thoughts? I think there's like two elements that I've seen um so in my course I remember like you know some of the lecturers I had were really really good at acknowledging privilege and taking a step back on certain topics and saying listen I'm so uninformed about this and I'm saying that now and I'm doing my own learning and that was so great to hear but I think on the flip side there are there are other academics who are saying to me like oh you I was writing about Harlem right um, in one of my um, assignments and obviously like talking about black liberation and things like that and that's quite difficult for a lot of white scholars to read and look at because it challenges your stance as a white person and I think that's one of the barriers that I found in my course is that there were a couple of topics um, not so much in creative writing more so towards English literature because of the tradition of English literature and because because you, you learn everything from Shakespeare to, you know, Jane Eyre, and I'm naming two white people. <laughs> so, you know, when you really think about it and you go back and you're like, I'm learning the tradition, like you're learning English literature from the perspective of Britain, when actually a lot of this stuff isn't actually British in the first place. Um, and some of these ideas and thoughts have come back like way before, like if you go back to storytelling, you know, a lot of that stuff has changed over the years and you know in a in, in a sense being colonized uh, in my education so that's why that's like an example of something that like I would say showed that to me 
in terms of like services and student services and looking at like just in general the way we look at mental health I think that was a big thing I think when I was at therapy and I was talking about like you know I'm really struggling with something and I couldn't I couldn't express to them how or why and it was like because my culture has allowed this to happen for years and years and years you know um and they just couldn't get it like to a certain degree you can be like I'm so sorry but to a certain degree you can't you, you can't unpack it any further because you don't have lived experience and you also you can't really relate it to culture and I think those are the two two main points that really like struck out to me um I mean in my time as president that makes that comes becomes clearer and clearer um I think as my time as a student I was a bit naive and I thought oh you know it's okay and I, I let a lot of things go as a student um I think because you're scared as well as a student you're scared you're like oh like these are people that are like authoritarian and like you know they determine what my degree looks like and I think that's quite uncomfortable as well and just you're kind of talking about like the barrier between I guess students and lecturers and then students and kind of like uh, the people who give the services at universities do you feel like we can mediate those barriers through education or do we actually need more kind of people of color in those positions like is it a matter of kind of education or is it a matter, matter of like diversifying I think it's a balance of both I think the problem that we always find is that we put people of color in, in these positions and say you need to take the brunt of all of this work with no extra pay no extra support and like and to be frank like if we're talking about EDI work and we're talking about decolonizing you know you put a bunch of brown people together and you go hey you know, can you do this work because you have lived experience, but with no kind of support around the fact that this is lived experience. Just because you've just because you've been through it doesn't mean you want to spend your entire life like unpacking that constantly. And I think that like there is a balance between that. I think that when if we're gonna put people of color in those positions, we need to be able to allow them to progress through the ranks as well. If we're looking at the hierarchy that is education system. You know, we need to let those people go to senior levels. We can't keep them at, you know, like a coordinator level and we can't just keep them there. Just like, oh, you'll do all the grunt work. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think, and that's why I say it's a balance of both because all that management and it's, it is typically white. Um, and I think those people need to start challenging the way that they think about, first of all, their own skin colour and where they stand. And the fact that, you know, what they're doing, they're talking about inclusivity, you know, are you really, you know, like really unpack it and, you know, think before you speak kind of stuff. And all that training and guidance is great. Um, but yeah, as I said, balance of both. Yeah, no, thank you. And I think just coming off what you've said there as well, I think there's definitely like that tension between EDI work and then like other kind of forms of social justice work like decolonial anti-racist work and how they're very like two separate kind of things mm. like as much as they cross over like we can't diversify and call it decolonization because it's a matter of it's not just diversifying it's very much like thinking from the ground up and rethinking and unlearning and I think yeah there's definitely that tension and I think a lot of people in managerial uh, managerial positions I think they it's hard to communicate kind of that tension 
and I think I think even it's try it's hard to even really articulate I think yeah but yeah it's definitely that something needs to be addressed yeah and there's there's stuff around that like for example like people need to accept privilege first of all and they need to own up to it and they need to understand what it is like to be in an underprivileged position and on top of that and then you've got things like for example you've got you've got and you you said something so like that just struck me and I'm going to bring it up next time we're going to a meeting now because it's, it's really really important um EDI work should never be separate from decolonizing work because they're both intersectional and I think people think of EDI as one of those tick box exercises to kind of get through to like yeah. in, in in big institutions and oh my god I have first-hand experience of that you know I used to work in diversity and inclusion in like urban outfitters for a little bit um and you know a lot of the stuff that I found like yeah great concepts but you like there's no there's no support there's no fruition of those those ideas and um you know you want to listen to people but you're not you want to listen to people and say you've got a place for that to happen but is it reflected Mm. through your hierarchy is that is it is it reflected to your student body because if I went around if I went around and asked the students do you know what EDI is they'd be like not really and Mm. isn't that supposed to be your living like and dying like breath of concepts like are you not supposed to be inclusive are you not supposed to be you know in any way having that ecology and diversity but that's just my opinion (laughs) (laughs) I guess that kind of uh leads nicely into my next question do you kind of find it challenging to have conversations about like race and coloniality and kind of the tensions between like EDI and decolonization with like the students well I guess it's a two-part question so with um your colleagues um and so like the other people in the positions in uh, the student union and like other students as well oh yeah I think um I think because I sit on a lot of university committees I think the narrative is changing slowly and I I, and I say that as a positive actually because as much as I've talked about you know privilege and coloniality like there are people in the institution that have been actively working really really hard to challenge that at that high level actually and wanting to be invited to board meetings so that's one thing I've seen within my own team like we all have the same kind of voice and pinnacle about it you know we all care so much and also want to do the best for our students um so in terms of the students union I think that like you know it takes a lot of unlearning we do a lot of allyship training as well which is like embedded in our practice we have a lot of new initiatives in terms of like an EDI partner that we have her name is Faro she's amazing um and she really challenges us on stuff you know she's like "Mm, is this really what we want to be doing and I think that retrospective like aspect of the students union really helps that direction um for students I feel like that's the difficulty I feel like for me um first of all there's about 20,000 students (laughs) that's the biggest challenge you've got a large amount of students and some students just come in want to get on with a degree and leave like there's no kind of there's no kind of um I want to change the world or I want to change the way that education looks like for me um and I think and I don't think that's up to the student really I think that the university and the students union need to do better at really explaining that to students and saying you know what the stuff we're talking about affects your education it affects your graduate outcomes if forget forget that even it affects your life 
because I think that's the gap. I think people think of it as like, oh, that that sounds really intense. And like, again, the language I'm using, you know, even the language I'm using right now about it, it's it's intense and it's it's something that not everyone grew up learning, and I've had to learn it. And I I wish people didn't have to learn terminology to be able to stand up for something that they care about and think about. So I think I think yeah, like really addressing that that there are barriers in the way that com- that we communicate with students. And that's something that I'm looking into, like, because I, as you can tell, it's something that, like, I care about a lot because I've had to change the way I am as a person to be able to fit into higher education. And that should never have been the case. And I don't know if that's a widespread problem. And I can't give you that information if that's a widespread problem. But I'm assuming (laughs) I'm assuming that a lot of people have to change their tone, have to change the way that they talk about certain things. And it's like, should we really be doing that? Or should we support students to understand what's going on? Like across the board, not not not, not like not just because of decolonizing, but in anything, in anything we do, you know, if health service is that all clear, does that make sense to people? Like really and truly half of these things are all anagrams of something else. So like it's really hard to understand. So I think that's the first step. Um and something that we struggle with really. No, thank you for that. What are some of the things um, that lecturers can do to kind of like decolonize their pedagogy and practice? I mean, there's probably so many things and I'm sure you have like a long list, but what do you feel like is one of the most important things that lecturers need to do? Um, I'm going to say this again. They have to accept that coloniality has shaped their, their education and knowledge. I think that once you know that about yourself, then you are fit to teach something. I think and that's the bit that's the hardest to 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 say yeah actually yeah I'm a white woman or I'm a white man and yeah fair enough that's not accepting I'm sorry that's not to accept it means to really look at everything that you learned for your entire time at Western site prior to that wherever you studied and say actually I see the gaps now that that is acknowledging that that is acknowledging and accepting And then from that point on, I guess, also creating a comfortable environment for students to actually challenge you. I think a lot of people, um, a lot of academics go in with the hat of, I know all of the things because I've studied all of them. And they might be right. You know what I mean? In some some topics, yeah, you probably know a lot more than me, you know? But you can't tell me about my own lived experience. The same way I can't tell another person about their own lived experience. And that's something that they need to be able to be comfortable with in education. It's supposed to be a collective and collaborative learning environment. And if a student can't feel comfortable to be able to be like, you know what, I disagree with you. Like, then what's the point? We're also supposed to be learning together. So I think that's the, the way that we look at learning styles needs to change too. So learning styles, acceptance of your privilege and your knowledge and where that's come from. And I think creating a comfortable environment for students to be able to challenge you, like in your own educational environment, because not only are you all learning together, but you're also progressing and thinking about actually, am I right? Am I wrong? You know, like there's so many, and you might not be right or wrong. You know, there's different, as you said, there's different, like earlier, you said there's different sides to different things and there's different perspectives. And you might not all agree, but to put that in a pot and say, actually, yeah, that's, that is that is a perspective to add to this that's really important I know that was that's like that's a very summed up three-tiered approach of looking at it but I think that's I think that's 
that can be added to any topic. Because I think a lot of times decolonizing is focused on like, you know, LAS in terms of like all of the humanities and social sciences, but actually take it to math, take it to like biomed, because the same principles work there. If you can't, if you don't feel comfortable with someone challenging you, like there's a whole thing around like medicine. Oh my God, the inaccuracies in medicine around black people and what skin conditions look like. I know I saw an amazing thread on Twitter about it, you know, looking at, you know, these are different conditions, but on black skin. So here's something, to, and that's something that's not talked about, um, you know, and higher mortality rates. How can that happen in your education? That's all down to education. You look at your, you look at your other sectors, and you're like, oh, people are dying because of like medical mal- malpractice or like something like they're being misprescribed mis- something, and you're like, actually, that goes back to your education establishment, not not addressing the fact that there are different types of people in the world, right? And that you have to look out for different types of symptoms because they show up differently on people. Um, but yeah, that's, that's that. <laughs> I was about to go on a whole different rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, thank you so much for those points, honestly. And I think what you're kind of alluding to there as well is kind of like the importance of having like student-staff partnership, which we really advocate for um, here on our projects. So my next question is just kind of, in what ways do you feel like students... Um, in what ways can students help their lecturers to kind of like decolonize or like do you feel like students should be helping their lecturers personally I don't think it's the responsibility of a student who's coming there to learn <laughs> to to keep challenging that um, however I, I do think that if you want to say something and you feel comfortable to say something please do um, you know there are so many societies and clubs as well that have actually started tackling this issue and started to like unpack it a little bit like we have an amazing society called sisterhood society and that's literally it's it's just come out now and it's in partnership with ACS and a lot of the work that they do as well is like having those debates even just within yourselves like have those debates and challenge that like the narrative that you're not putting out like in terms of students like what do, you, what do you want really from us um and I think the students union is a really good bet to come and really say that um and as you just said that student like academic partnership like also works really well if you feel comfortable um and that's the most important thing for me um but yeah I, I don't necessarily believe that students should be the people always outre- outreaching to us you know we're the service we're supposed to be providing to students you know if, if we're looking at it like that they're coming here paying nine thousand pounds like you know they're not trying to do extra work for that nine thousand pounds like so I would rather create the environment for someone to be able to come and be like yeah this is okay for me to do but yeah amazing thank you Zara um unfortunately we're coming to the end of this interview but as a question I like to end on what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop in higher education in the next 10 years oh I think in the next 10 years, I'd like to see different learning styles being taken into consideration and different types of assessments being used. Um, Because not, you know, I don't want that all size fits one approach. Um, I think the next thing I'd love to see is, (laughs) I'd love to see a decolonized education system. Um, And like, you know, if that wasn't clear enough from before. I think I'd also love to see academics play an active role in shaping student experience. You know, mm-hmm. the Students Union does a lot to say, you know, a lot of, and the other manifesto point I forgot to mention, I see is that I want, I'm building that relationship with academics to be able to make them champions of unions 
and champions mm-hmm. of helping us like push things forward and so that's what I would wish for is that that's an automatic response you know an automatic thing is yeah we care about student experience rather than money rather than any of the other factors that come into education um and honestly I I would love to see education be free I know that's such a yeah and that might not happen in 10 years um you know we don't know what the time it looks like but I would love for everyone to have equal and uh, like an open access to education um but yeah I think that's that's my vision <laughs> maybe people would maybe too optimistic but you know <laughs> no not at all Thank you so, so, so much, Zara. What a nice way to just bring the interview to a close. Um, I just want to thank you again for joining me on this episode. You know, it's been nice getting to know a little bit more about yourself and also having the opportunity to discuss, you know, your role in the student union and um, as well as your ideas on decolonizing the curriculum. So, yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you for having me anytime. To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ.